Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will recap the week that was, reflect on the drivers behind fixed income performance over the past quarter, offer you a look at the Chief Investment Office's near-term market outlook, and what you can expect in the week ahead. So a lot to cover. Fortunately for us, we have on the line with us today both Barry McAlinden and Frank Saleo, Senior Fixed Income Strategist Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So Barry, Frank, good morning, happy Friday, and looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise, happy Friday. Good morning, Dan. So uh, Frank, maybe as a starting point, can you simply begin by recapping for us some of this week's most notable market events, which drove the activity? What can you share with us? Yeah, this week, really the overriding theme uh, for the week, and really since the beginning of September, has been one of transition. Whether we're talking about economic trends or, or market trends, investors have been focusing on uh, a theme of transition, particularly as it relates to Fed policy. And all of these things, of course, are interrelated, Fed policy, economic trends, market trends, and Fed policy being really the major support to risk markets for the past 18 months. But we are at a period now or a stage uh, embarking on a period of transition in Fed policy, which will then feed back and have an impact on those economic trends. And uh, economic and market trends. Um, and, and, uh, you know, inherent in any transition, of course, though, is, is uncertainty. Will it be a smooth transition? Will it be a rocky one? And because of this uncertainty, markets by and large have struggled, uh, this week and, and more broadly during the month of September. Now, in terms of, of Fed policy, uh, the Fed's tapering plan, that's, that's their plan to slowly uh, taper their monthly purchases of assets under their quantitative easing program. That tapering plan, uh, or the potential for the tapering plan, has been a major market focus for the past three weeks, really, ever since the Jackson Hole uh, Economic Symposium three weeks ago. That's when Fed Chair Jay Powell indicated that a tapering of those monthly quantitative easing purchases would likely begin by year-end. And really, that makes sense because the the the, uh, the the purpose of a quantitative easing program is to provide emergency liquidity, and that's probably no longer needed at this stage of where we are in the cycle. But uh, Chair Jay Powell, uh, as, long, as well as other Fed officials, have uh, made it a point to convey to the markets that tapering is not tightening. Rate hikes are likely still a couple years away, and the timing of those would be more related to trends, for example, in the labor market. Speaking of the labor market, we did get the August job report jobs report that was three weeks ago now but that's something that the market continues to focus on the latest jobs report as we know was um the non-farm payrolls added 235,000 uh which was below expectations which had been calling for 733,000 and well below the, the july jobs gain of over a million so clearly more ground to cover when it comes to uh the employment picture no rush to hype rates but there were some offsetting factors uh, in the August job report that investors continue to uh, consider and ruminate over. First, the unemployment rate has continued to drop. We're now at 5.2% from 5.4%. The second factor is that the weakness 
and uh, in the, the job gains in August. Part of the reason why it was lower, lower than expected is that there was weakness concentrated in virus-sensitive sectors like uh, uh, leisure, hospitality, restaurants, things like that. And this all relates to the impact of the Delta variant and the impact it's having on uh, folks, particularly in those sectors. And as the impact of the Delta variant recedes, however, so should those supply pressures. And the good news is we have been seeing more recently the pace of new COVID cases uh, beginning to decelerate both here in the United States and globally. And then finally, the last point I bring out in terms of that August uh, August jobs report is that average hourly earnings rose by 0.6% month over month versus expectations of 0.3%. This is really reflective of some labor supply issues. So we see that the job gains were lower than anticipated, but average hourly earnings also rose. So this is indicative of a supply issue, not a labor demand issue, but a labor supply issue. And the the picture of a tight labor market was further painted by the JOLTS job survey uh, last week, which showed a record number of unfilled job openings in the U.S. economy to the tune of 10.9 million that's up from the prior month's uh, total of 10.2 million. And this is the latest number of the JOLTS jobs uh, survey is the sixth consecutive record high of unfilled jobs. And that was uh, further illustrated in the Fed's Beige Book last week, also reflecting labor shortages and wage pressures. And then earlier this week, the NFIB survey of small businesses showed that uh, 50%, another record number of respondents reported unfilled jobs. And all of this points to uh, back to Fed policy related to the taper. While rate hikes are still in the distant future, the latest trends, the tightness of the labor market, keep the Fed on track for a taper of that quantitative easing program, probably around the December-January time frame. We're likely to get specific tapering plans, policies, procedures at the next FOMC meeting next week. That'll likely be laid out for us in in terms of how this will work. But uh, then we'd expect an announcement, an official announcement and commencement of the easing towards year end. So with that in the background, those are sort of the latest trends. The impact it's had on fixed income markets or more broadly the rate markets is that uh, rates have settled in into somewhat of a higher range than they had been during the summer months, but still somewhat range-bound. Uh, with a 10-year Treasury at about 1.25 to 1.35 in recent weeks. I think this morning we're about 1.34% on the 10-year Treasury. So uh, that's just some of the, the highlights of the backdrop that the market's been focused on over the past three weeks. Barry, I know you had some uh, more specific thoughts on, on inflation uh, trends and other items. Yeah, thanks, Frank. Uh, well, just this week we did get the, the latest CPI release for August, and it did show that inflation slowed a bit in August. Uh, rising only 0.3%, and the core CPI was up 0.1%. Um, these were smaller increases in recent months. But, uh, again, the, the, the message from the Chief Investment Office is that we do expect prices to continue to rise for a broad range of goods and services. Um, in particular, in the core CPI, um, measures of rents could start to catch up and contribute more to inflation. So we don't think this August CPI report really marks a trend in lower inflation. Um, retail sales came out this week, and, and this surprise to the upside, it rose uh, 0.7% uh, and 1.8%, excluding autos. 
Uh, it did get a boost likely from just overall back-to-school shopping as well as uh, some child tax credit payments that Americans have, have been receiving, many of them. Um, but the composition of retail sales was probably uh, the, the more interesting information to digest where you did see sales at restaurants that were a bit flatlined. But areas like online shopping did jump. So, you know, I guess that the bears would point out that the composition of the, of the report was maybe a little bit more defensive. Um, but nonetheless, the, the number uh, does feed well in, into the growth uh, picture. As we know, you know, we're past peak growth. There's, there's been concerns about growth, but this uh, points more in, in the positive direction, um, you know, for the quarter. And finally, I'd like to highlight news out of Washington, D.C. Uh, this week, um, where we did have the House Ways and Means Committee releasing the proposed tax provisions of uh, the broader budget reconciliation bill. And it included higher tax brackets for uh, individuals uh, earning above 400000 for singles or 450000 for married. Uh, that would revert back up to the 39.6% top rate and also an increase in the core, um, capital gains rate to, to 25% for individuals in those brackets as well. Uh, the capital gains rate would be effective as of September 13th. Um, so that the House draft bill uh, is likely uh, to pass out of committee uh, relatively soon. It'll then go before the full House, where it's also likely to pass, according to our, our UBS office in public, public policy in, in D.C., uh, and then at that point, uh, it would be the, the Senate's turn to take up the bill. But, you know, that was um, certainly something that caught the attention of individual investors this week. And not to mention also an increase in the, in the corporate tax rate as well, rising to 26.5%. So definitely um, something that uh, will affect the you know asset prices going forward. Well, Barry, Frank, that was very comprehensive. And thank you for bringing us up to speed on a variety of topics, including data points, as well as monetary policy and the fiscal negotiations ongoing still down in Washington, D.C. More to track there. Uh, Barry, I know earlier this week you joined us on top of the morning with your colleague Leslie Falconio to talk about the fixed income strategist publication. So it's hard to believe, though, as we're heading towards the end of the third quarter, how have fixed income markets been performing generally speaking and also specifically to the areas that both yourself and Frank focus on specifically? Yeah, it, fixed income uh, assets have been performing relatively well because of this range-bound you know, interest rate environment and specific to credit, the fundamental environment you know, is really especially robust. So when you think about corporations and the rebound that they're seeing you know, in their um, results relative to last year, that's helping to really stem any uh, deterioration that we saw in their balance sheet metrics from a leverage point of view. So that you're, you're pretty much back to pre-crisis types of leverage metrics for your average investment grade company already. Um, and, and, and that helps to support the level of valuations that you're seeing in the marketplace, as we know. We are in an environment where not only are treasury yields uh, low, but also credit spreads are, are are compressed. Right, we've accelerated to this kind of mid-cycle type of of uh, valuation in, in terms of credit spreads. So, so we know that makes the absolute value um, a bit challenging. Uh, so we're definitely in more of a relative value type of market as it relates to credit. And maybe I'll just point out, on a relative sense, some of our preferences would favor. At the asset class level, 
senior loans because they're floating rate. So we think that's a way that investors can um, participate with exposure to credit, but yet not the duration uh, risk uh, that's associated with um, higher you know interest rates and, and the pricing pressure that that would that would provide. With traditional high-yield bonds that have fixed coupons, uh, we have a neutral allocation. We think investors can earn the carry in that asset class uh, going forward, and, and the default rate environment is, is likely to remain low. Uh, but with the investment-grade asset class, we do see it uh, still most uh, vulnerable to rising interest rates. And even if uh, you know we the rate uh, outlook going forward is still a bit, let's say, lower for longer, you know, we still think the trajectory is going to be uh, more of an upward fashion. And that'll put uh, pressure on uh, bond prices, especially investment grade where spreads are thin, uh, and especially for longer maturities. So for those that like high quality bonds uh, for their income, you know, we still think uh, focusing on, on the shorter part of the investment grade credit curve um, is the, the prudent thing to do. Uh, we'll wait uh, to see rates uh, maybe trade up to a higher range you know, closer towards, let's say, that 170, 180 area on the 10-year before becoming more comfortable with maturities further out. Um, and then from a credit rating standpoint, we would still tend to favor more that the triple Bs that offer a bit higher income than their single-A counterparts. Uh, and for investors who wish to go beyond the investment-grade asset class, we do see opportunities in certain areas of the high-yield market, like in the double-B area where you, there's rising stars or issuers that could potentially get upgraded where you know you still see some spread compression potential existing um, for, for those issues. Um, and then, of course, you know, extending um, beyond just your traditional fixed-income asset classes and, and considering other areas like emerging markets debt where our colleagues uh, and CIO who focus that space really are, are trying to really advertise the value that it has, um, especially for issuers, bond issuers, that they, they're comfortable from with a credit fundamental point of view. You can definitely pick up some yield relative to you know, traditional domestic market types of bond issues. So that, that's going to be the key is um, just extending you know a little bit beyond your traditional uh, fixed income instruments in order to you know, gain more attractive yield. Yeah, and I would just add, I mean, Barry touched on a lot, uh, a, a lot of great points there. The only thing I would add really, you know, I, I, I look um, as the coordinating strategist behind the yield and income report, I also uh, track and monitor performance in a, a, a in sectors beyond fixed income, a, more, a, a broader variety. The yield and income report covers uh, U.S. equities, emerging market stocks, international stocks, as well as uh, municipal bonds, high-yield bonds, investment-grade corporates, preferred REITs, MLPs, and a lot of other sectors. So um, in terms of, of the broader performance, uh, as we head towards the close of, of uh, the third quarter, clearly equities have been uh, have performed better than, than fixed income. Large cap equities have been the standout, particularly large cap growth by uh, more than six and a half percent so far this quarter. Uh, also, REITs up by about five percent so far this quarter. But um, so far in September, those two sectors, which were some of the best performers uh, quarter to date, are giving back some of those gains. And I think this. This calls back to the transition theme that I alluded to earlier at the start of this call. Um, I think the next, you know, 
as we as we close out the third quarter, heading into fourth quarter, fourth quarter, we are likely to see uh, a bit more volatility as the market uh, uh, wrestles with uh, this transitionary period, transition in terms of Fed policy, and also. Uh, what's going on in Washington, the uh, uh, budget and, and taxing policy uh, debate that's ongoing, as, as Barry mentioned. The final thing I'd point out uh, in terms of preferreds, which is my area of focus, preferreds have been flat for the month, flat for the quarter, just up 2.5% year to date. Um, the sector was helped by declining uh, interest rates throughout the second quarter, but that also encouraged investors to drive prices higher in the preferred space and drive yield premiums lower. They're at close to historic tights now, so there's not a lot of room to absorb any future rate volatility that we may see uh, going forward. And, uh, you know, that that's what's been the case really in the preferred space. So that's why we've been seeing this sort of ebbs and flows in the preferred market in recent weeks and months, seeing this sort of two-step forward, two-step back type pattern. And, you know, with the upward bias in rates, I expect uh, that to continue, uh, Dan, for the uh, preferred uh, space uh, for the remainder of the year. Okay. Well, Frank Barry, thank you for the fixed income performance roundup and recap. Uh, maybe at this point, we can pivot the conversation to looking forward. Uh, to that point, Frank, can you speak to the Chief Investment Office's overall market outlook and uh, maybe speak to some of the more notable events taking place in the week ahead? Yeah, definitely. The big focus next week uh, will be the, the Fed meeting, the FOMC meeting. Um, people will, spe- investors will specifically be looking to see if the Fed is going to lay out some specifics with respect to the tapering of its quantitative easing program. Uh, what will the policy and procedures be? What will the pace uh, of those? Um, of, of that tapering be, uh, you know, that they're currently purchasing 120 billion, uh, per month in, uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Will that pace decline? You know, what's the pace of the decline? Basically, that's going to be part of, of what investors will be looking for next week. And how long will it take to bring that pace down to zero? Um, those are the two main elements. Um, and, but that's just the plan, and that'll be hopefully coming out next week. That's the expectation with an announcement and timing of commencement of the plan likely to come uh, later in the year. Uh, investors out of that uh, FOMC meeting will also be looking at the Dodd plot, uh, the all-important Dodd plot summary uh, of, of economic projections, uh, inflation forecasts, all those type of uh, forecasts for the Fed funds rate and for inflation and other items that uh, Fed officials uh, relay uh, typically after the FOMC meeting. And, um, you know, so that will be uh, a key uh, item to look for next week. And also maybe some more drama out of Washington uh, next week and in the weeks ahead as uh, there's more debate about tax policy, fiscal, fiscal spending, the debt ceiling, all of that. Um, but against that backdrop at CIO, you know, we do expect the reflation trade to persist. We still favor equities over credit. Uh, we generally look for interest rates to continue to rise, as Barry mentioned. The 10-year Treasury yield, as I mentioned, about 134 right now. We look for that to revisit um, its 2021 high of about 175 uh, at around year-end or by year-end. And so against this backdrop, overall and fixed income could be a more of a challenging environment. Valuations 
are, are challenging. Uh, as, as Barry mentioned, you know, high yield, uh, in high yield credit premiums are near historically tight levels. Investment grade in particular, as Barry alluded to, more susceptible to those higher rates and actually looking rich. It's a, it's a least preferred sector. And from my standpoint, preferred starting to look a bit rich as well, historically speaking, but maybe more fair relative to these other sectors like investment grade corporates. Um, so I think those uh, that's what we'll be looking for next week, and that's just a, a, a broad outlook from my, my perspective. I don't know, Barry, if you have uh, a few things to add there. No, Frank, that was great. Um, all eyes, as you mentioned, will be on the Fed meeting uh, on the 22nd. And I think, uh, as you mentioned, especially since this is one of the meetings where we do get an updated summary of economic projections as well as a, a dot plot. And recall uh, during the last quarterly meeting in June when the dot plot was released, that was a bit of a, a market mover uh, in, in the fixed income rates market because, it, you know, it showed uh, that, that two hikes were being priced in in 2023. And uh, in fact, there were seven dots suggesting a hike in 2022. Now, you know, I think maybe the market might be a little bit more prepared for, for potential changes to the dot plot I, um, if there are any. Um, than there were leading up to that June meeting, but but certainly when you have you know both the economic projections and the dots being updated, it, it tends to um, you know be an even uh, extra special meeting in terms of uh, the potential market impact it might have. It will be interesting to hear what comes from the Fed next week, though. Barry Frank, it's always great catching up with you both. A very productive session to close out the week and provide our listeners, our clients, with a sense for what they should be looking out for in the week ahead. So we'll look forward to picking back up the conversation with you both again soon. Though in the meantime, I wish you both a nice weekend. Thank you again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks very much. Again, today we've been joined by both Barry McAlinden and Frank Saleo, Senior Fixed Income Strategists Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. So as a reminder to our clients and our listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office does author a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can all be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, including two notable publications that both tie right into our conversation today with Barry and Frank. Uh, They are the Yield and Income Labor Days, that's D-A-Z-E, as well as the Fixed Income Strategist Sustainability in Fixed Income Beyond a Label. So for clients of UBS, you can always contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more about today's topics or if you would like to receive a copy of the Yield and Income and the Fixed Income Strategist directly. Top of the Morning is part of the UBS Market Moves podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways 
is and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.